Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus and find chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me ask a question in light of our children's message. How many of you have ever begun a project which at the outset promised to be brief, however, as you got into it, discovered that it was far more complex than you could ever have imagined? What had looked like a simple in-and-out task turned out to be a life-sucking swamp from which you began to wonder if you would ever emerge. This, this was our family's experience. Early last year, Melinda was preparing dinner when all of a sudden our stove made this loud popping noise, which was accompanied by a sudden flash of light followed by the smell of burning electrical wires. And at first, we hoped that it was simply a surge, but upon closer inspection, we discovered that the element in our oven had gone out. Now, as many of you know, I am a real handyman around our house. <laughs> okay, that's not true. My wife will call me on that. Usually, usually I call my dad or George. Uh, but on this occasion, I promptly went online to find a fix. And I was pleasantly surprised to discover that there were numerous YouTube videos addressing the very issue that I faced. So after watching the solutions, I informed my wife we had nothing to fear. You know, this issue is a simple fix. I've already re found a replacement part. It's on its way. We'll be here in a couple of days. And Melinda, as you know, ever the trooper, she made do without her oven while we waited for this part to arrive. And on the day that it did, we had a grand ceremony. His dad, the awesome home repair guy, took this part out of the box and then carried it in to the sanctuary of our kitchen and prepared to place it in the oven. And there was much fanfare there was celebration as my children sang my praises. Actually, the scene more closely resembled that of a cross-examination in a courtroom as my kids asked, does he know what he's doing? Mom, is this wise? Shouldn't he call Dad or Mr. You know, Mr. George? Well, fueled by the doubt in the room, I proceeded to repair our oven only to replace the element, flip the switch, and witness crazy flashes of light, smell this burning smell, and smoke rose from our oven. Needless to say, the jury found Dad guilty of gross negligence. I was sentenced to seek outside help. This project I had thought was a simple fix was far more complex than I'd ever imagined. In fact, what I'd initially said would be a two-day fix, that was two days factoring in shipping for the part I had ended up purchasing, it was over a six-month-long kitchen transformation, during which time my wife valiantly made do. Contrary to my promise, things will be back to normal in no time, honey. Things actually got much worse, much, much worse before they got any clo close to being better. Can any of you relate to an experience like that this morning? Have you ever been in a situation where your circumstances seemed unbearable? You clung to hope offered you by someone else that they're going to get better soon. Things will soon improve, only they didn't. In fact, they got much worse, much worse. Well, this was the reality for God's people here in Exodus chapter 5. And so I'd like to read for us this morning our text. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 5. Exodus 5, 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I won't let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. 
Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foreman in charge of the people. You are to no longer supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let's go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And I'd like to stop right there for a moment. Because in these first nine verses, I believe that the clear point here is that Pharaoh rejected God's word. Pharaoh rejected God's word. In verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? Meaning Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all caps, the name that God revealed to Moses that established his absolute existence independent of everything. Pharaoh declares, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? And clearly Pharaoh has no idea who it is that Moses and Aaron are speaking about when they make the request there in verse 1. And their effort to introduce Yahweh by association as the God of Israel makes no impression. For Pharaoh continues, I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, I wish that we were given a clearer sense of Moses and Aaron's reaction at this point. Were these men shocked, disheartened, disillusioned, stone-faced? You know, our text doesn't say. However, the fact that in verse 3 they repeat their request while incorporating a different title for Yahweh, along with including a reference to his punishments should they not obey, suggests to me that at this stage they're still confident Pharaoh will capitulate. Because you remember, God promised Moses that I will stretch out my hand over these Egyptians and strike them with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And that he would make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites. God had also promised that the elders of Israel would listen to Moses, and they already had, hadn't they? And so at this stage, I have to believe that Moses was confident in a speedy and and, and submissive response from Israel's slave master. Unfortunately, the king of Egypt could have cared less what Israel's God, his slave's God, desired. For Pharaoh, as a demigod, he ruled Egypt. He determined what the Hebrews did, not Yahweh. And therefore, these threats are no... He isn't about to let them go. In fact, to display his might over his slaves and their God, Pharaoh increased their suffering by ordering the foreman to no longer supply them with the necessary elements for the performance of their duties. Now, the Israelites had to find their own straw while still being held responsible to fill their previous brick quotas. Moses and Aaron's promise of hope resulted in disaster from the Israelites' perspective as Pharaoh rejected God's word. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've experienced a a situation that may have mirrored that of Israel in Egypt? You know, possibly you know God's promises to provide for his people and and that he has plans which are for your good and his glory. But then say suddenly in your life you lose your job. You lose your job. And at first you're determined to see this change while hard as an opportunity to start something new. Because maybe that's, you know, that's how God is helping you to... to, to, to make a transition that you've been hesitant to make before. But then you find no employment. Things only seem to get worse, and you can't make ends meet. Before, you'd had to make life's payments, but at least you'd been provided with the supplies to do so. Now, you're still required to make those payments, only you have no supplies at all. Or maybe your experience has concerned your health or that of a loved one. You know, everything was going great, but then you had this appointment or this experience, and And cancer was found, or a stroke, 
occurred. And at first you were optimistic, believing, yeah, yeah, this is something we could beat. And that through prayer, we'll get through this, we'll overcome this. Only things didn't get better. They got worse, progressively worse. Have you ever felt like Israel surely did as Pharaoh rejected God's word? In the verses that follow, verses 10 through 21 there in chapter 5, we read of the slave drivers enacting Pharaoh's order and how the Israelite foreman suffered as a result, as their crews failed. And failure was inevitable because of Pharaoh's unreasonable demands. The foremen were beaten. And so they appealed to the king only to be informed they're lazy. They and the people that they oversaw. Pharaoh ignored their concerns, at which point we're told, if you were to look at verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble. And so leaving the king's presence and seeing Moses and Aaron, they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses and Aaron had brought Israel Yahweh's message of hope and his promise of joy. But instead of getting better, things only got worse. And you ever felt like these foremen here? And church, I believe that we all have at one point or another. And right here, I'm speaking exclusively to those who are Christ followers. But I believe that we have all heard God's promise to, in his word that is to provide for all our needs, to watch over us, to direct us, to be with us, that his plans are for our good as the prophet Jeremiah declared, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a, a future, right? And we've all heard these words, but then our life circumstances turn, and they appear to completely contradict God's word. And in that moment, we, like the foreman, we call for a judge because clearly someone's done something wrong, right? Otherwise, our life wouldn't look like it is. We naturally conclude that if if something or someone, something's gone wrong, somebody has to have sinned. Somebody's disobeyed God, and therefore our lives are like they are. And we do this with our health. We do it with our jobs, with our studies, our families, our work. You know, the moment that something hurts or is uncomfortable, we assume that somebody must have messed up because a good God would never allow such hurt and harmful events to happen to his people, right? But church, where do... Where do these words feature in the scriptures? Where are these sentiments recorded in God's word? God never promised to spare us discomfort. In fact, Jesus promised that this would be his people's lot, for this is how he was treated. Unfortunately, we, like the Hebrew foreman before us, we see ourselves as special, don't we? We view our circumstances as ultimate, and therefore we believe that we're deserving of something better, and thus when our life circumstances deteriorate, we immediately assume that God has lost control. He's no longer in control. When we find ourselves suffering, we conclude that God's plans must have somehow been thwarted. Because isn't our eternal happiness the most important thing? Pharaoh rejected God's word. And then we see that Moses regretted God's word. Moses regretted God's word. Look at verse 22 there. In chapter 5, following his confrontation with these angry foremen, we're told that Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. <laughs> Is this not an odd response? 
Does this strike anyone else as strange? Because remember, while God did clearly promise to display his wonders in the rescue of his people and to make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites, he also clearly stated back in chapter 3, verse 19, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. In addition, in chapter 4, in verse 21, God reiterated how when Moses arrived in Egypt, he was to perform all of the wonders that God had given him. So that's the staff to snake to staff thing, and then the hand as well as the blood miracles. But that he, that's God. God would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. In fact, according to the scriptures, those were God's final instructions to Moses at this stage. In other words, the last thing that God had told Moses was that Pharaoh wouldn't listen and that it would be because God himself had hardened his heart. And now when Pharaoh does the very thing that God has promised, Moses wigs out. Why? And church, as much as I would like to ridicule Moses for his weakness here and his poor memory, I fear that I share these same character traits. Because how many times have I questioned God's intentions? How many times have I questioned and heard him declare his love for me and his promise to, to provide? But then the moment that I encounter a problem, something that I wasn't anticipating, it wasn't in my future, I start this interrogation. Why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Didn't you promise to take care of me and my loved ones? If you called me to this, then why is this happening to me? If you're going to act, God, then why don't I see you acting? Why am I the one who's suffering here? If you're good, how can this be right? If you love me, then you would surely not let this happen to me. Have you ever found yourself asking these questions of God? I have. And what I believe they reveal, church, as reflected in Moses' regret here, is the misconception that God's greatest concern is my physical well-being. The misconception that God's greatest concern is my physical well-being. And that's a reality that I believe we see borne out in the verses that follow, where now God reminds Moses of his promise. We've seen Pharaoh reject God's word. Moses regret God's word. Now God reminds Moses of his promise. And so would you look with me at the first verse now there in chapter 6? First verse of chapter 6 reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Isn't that interesting? Following Moses' complaint, God responds by reminding Moses of his promise. And did you notice who is the focus of this reminder? It's not the people, is it? It isn't Israel and their well-being that God puts front and center before Moses, is it? It's the Lord himself and Pharaoh. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Moses' whole beef was based upon the people's feelings, their, their suffering and, and enslavement. For Moses, I believe, the ultimate issue at this stage was Israel's freedom. And when his liberation message failed to result in instant relief, the man concluded that God must have got it wrong. But as God reminds Moses of his promise, I believe that God reveals a fundamentally different focus. God's principal concern is his glory. God is supreme, and his supreme desire is that he be glorified above all, for he alone is Yahweh. I am 
who I am. Pharaoh had not always been, but in the beginning, Yahweh was. Pharaoh's gods were created. Yahweh is the creator. Pharaoh's days were numbered, and yet Yahweh is eternal. And therefore, as Moses returned, disillusioned by the suffering, marking Israel's role in this story, the Lord reminds him of who's the author. Yahweh is supreme, and he is determined to demonstrate that supremacy to his people who are the object of his love. How? By demonstrating his mighty hand such that Pharaoh won't just let them leave. Oh no, the man's going to drive them out. And friends, don't we all, like Moses, get hung up on who this story is all about? And I'm not speaking specifically about the story here in Exodus, although that's where we see this truth revealed. No, I'm speaking about the story of life, of your life, and of my life. How, how frequently do we catch ourselves viewing life through the lens that, that everything revolves around me, what I want, what I'm going to study, what I'm called to do, what work will I be about? We get fixed on this idea that God saved me. Why? Because I'm me. He did what he did so that I could be free. I could be happy. I could have life and joy and live in heaven forever. God sent Jesus for me because he loves me. I mean, who, who wouldn't, right? I mean, as human beings, we, we, we are born consumed with ourselves, aren't we? We demand food. We, we scream when we don't get our way. We disobey and feign ignorance when we're confronted by others. We throw all our toys out of the crib because we don't get our way. And then we grow up. And sadly, we don't change, do we? And if you, we still believe life's all about me. And if you disagree, just watch some political primaries. So sad. You know, we, we believe that God did what he did for us. And, and I want to make sure that I'm clear on this point so that I don't confuse anyone. Because God... He did die for us, but not because of us. He died so that he might demonstrate his grace and love to us. God didn't have to save anyone. God didn't have to die on the cross for anyone, but he did so so that he might demonstrate his grace and love. This is why we see, as Paul referenced, and we spoke about this text last week briefly, Romans 9, Paul says, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? That's us, prepared for destruction due to our sin. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Church, God sent Moses to set his people free. Why? So that he, that's God, might be glorified above all. And this is what God reminds Moses of following Pharaoh's rejection and his own regret. The Lord reminds Moses of his promise. But then he also restates his name. The Lord restates his name. Our fourth point. Look back with me now to chapter 6 and verse 2. It's where our text continues. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So God reminds Moses of his promise and then he restates his name. Because here in verse 2, God declares his covenantal name, Yahweh. Now this is the name, as we said, that the Lord spoke to Moses in the desert as he was standing there before the burning bush and he inquired, suppose I go to the Israelites and ask, say to them that here I am and they ask me, who is it that sent you? What am I supposed to say? And God revealed his name. In all of his dealings with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord had not revealed himself by the name Yahweh. In his covenant forming, to this point, the Lord had only made himself known as God Almighty, which in the language of the Old Testament was the name El Shaddai, a name I'm sure some of us are familiar with. However, with Moses, now God revealed something new. He is Yahweh. He's El Shaddai, but he's even more revealing. He is Yahweh. And what I believe that God was doing here was establishing his character as a, both a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. Because if, if God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless him, to give him a land, and to through him bring about the blessing of all nations, and if God had then renewed this covenant with Isaac and, and then Jacob, and he had done all of this as El Shaddai, then how much greater should Moses' confidence have been if God has not only restated this covenant as linked with his name El Shaddai, but now he's tied it intimately to his name Yahweh. You know, I realize in this morning that this whole multiple name thing is odd for us. I mean, today we don't give names that reflect character today or speak of our person, at least not generally. You know, today many of the names that we see are chosen simply for their uniqueness. And they don't really possess any meaning other than that which the one who owns it brings to that name. But this wasn't the case in the Old Testament. A name was representative of person. It described aspects of one's personality, of one's character, communicated elements of who you are. And thus, in that name, El Shaddai, or, or God Almighty, literally God the Mountain One, this name bespoke God's power and his ability to do all and to accomplish all that he willed. Likewise, that name, Yahweh, communicated God's existence. And this was a subject that if you were with us several weeks ago, we, we spent a significant amount of time studying back in chapter 3, in verse 14, it's, for it's there that we saw God connect his being, his existence, with his name. In essence, this is where God says that what you are to call me, the name that you are to attribute to me, this is, is in essence, this is secondary, if you will, to the fact that I just am. The fact that I am, that I exist, is first foundational. It is of an infinite importance. Yahweh is, for there's no other God of whom this can be said. He alone is. And while we may be for a time, there was a moment when we weren't, along with everything else. And there will be a time when what is, that's us and everything else, will cease to be as it is. These are existential realities that face the created order, but not Yahweh. Our God is. And this is why he promises or he makes his oath on the basis of his name, because he alone is ultimate. There's nothing higher to which God can appeal, as the writer of Hebrews states, if you were to look, chapter 6, verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater 
for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. There is nothing, no one greater than our God. And thus he bases his covenants upon himself and he seeks his own end in these covenants. And this end is his glory. That is the declaration of the greatness of his name to the exclusion of all others. And then church, this is humbling. This is humbling, but it is a life-changing reality. Why? Because it means that all that God does, He does independent of our weaknesses and in spite of our flaws. Because when God informed Moses to tell the Israelites of His plan, God's plan wasn't contingent upon the Israelites, was it? God's God made clear, I will free you and I will will redeem you. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. All of these mighty acts God would accomplish. Why? Because he is. And the result would be that then the people would know him. God would work his will for his glory. And I believe that Pharaoh's rejection and Moses' his, his regret reveals a beautiful truth about our God and his plans. And that is that God does not operate on our timetables or our desires. Despite all that God did here before Moses' eyes, this man still got hung up on who the whole saving thing was about. Again, at this stage, it seems that Moses believed that what God did, he did reflected the greatness of the ones for whom he was doing it. And that central to Israel's story was the safety and the satisfaction of these people. But what God made clear was that his principal concern was his glory, the greatness of his name. And guys, God is still all about his glory. The gospel's not about us and our unique needs. It is all about a God who came and lived among us so that he might demonstrate his love, reveal his great patience, and proclaim his grace. The gospel makes much of Christ. For in the gospel, we realize that God came, God lived, God died, God rose for those he foreknew, those he called, those he justified, and those he will also glorify. The gospel makes much of Christ. And therefore, we don't need to fear when our life circumstances may, like the people of Israel, deteriorate. We may find ourselves suffering and enduring what seems to be beyond our ability to bear. And in those moments, may we be reminded, as was Moses, that this whole story, church, is not about us. But our heartaches, our suffering leads us to know that we can't rely on ourselves, but only on the God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Do you know this hope this morning? Have you experienced the, the freedom that the gospel extends, because if not, I want to pray for you as we close in a moment, that God will, by his power, open your eyes to see the reality of your life's circumstances, how the struggles that you are facing all stem from you, your sin. We can't point our fingers at anyone else. And this is an admission that we, in and of ourselves, cannot come to but only by God's grace. I want to pray that you, that God would enable you to confess your sin, to repent of your sin, and then to trust in Jesus. But if you've been 
a follower of Christ for years. And maybe in these past six months, your life circumstances have changed. Maybe even in this last week. And you've been questioning. You've been struggling. As we all have struggled. Be reminded that what we experience simply leads us to realize that we cannot depend upon ourselves. If our hope unto eternity depended upon the strength of our faith, we are lost. Or the, 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 the conviction that we have, the sincerity with which we determine to follow Christ. If your hope unto eternity depends upon any of those things, then there will come a moment in your life, if not now but down the road, where you will question whether or not you have true faith. But when you realize that the gospel is what saves us, it's God's grace through our faith. Your faith is simply hoping and holding on to the promises made, not by you to follow Jesus, but by Jesus to rescue you from sin. When you hold on to that, then you can walk, as Jesus said, through anything because he carries you. And if that's been your experience, I pray that you would hold on to Christ in these days and weeks that follow. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord Jesus, we thank you that when our hearts are at empty, Father, when our faith seems to be failing, that we still stand assured. Father, that we still stand confident because that confidence that we have is not rooted in our abilities, but simply in you. And Father, if there are those this morning that have been struggling with life, their circumstances deteriorating, calling them, causing them to question how a good God could allow such things to occur. And if, Father, they've been struggling, Lord, might this morning, as we've heard the hope that is ours in the gospel, Lord, might they see that we all have sinned and fallen far short of your glory. God, not a one of us merits what you give in the gospel. Lord, we never do. And that's why it is a gospel of grace. Lord, in the life change that you bring, only you can bring about because it is so radical. As it is described as new birth, it is such. For our old desires and passions are gone. And now we have a desire, a hunger for you, your word, to gather with your people and to worship and to share your hope with others. Father, if there's anyone this morning that has not had that hope, Father, I pray that you would bring that to light today to life. Lord, and for those of us who have been grieving in this past week and months in our lives' experiences, Father, would you remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus? Lord, as the Apostle Paul said in their experience in Corinth, they came to the point where they despaired of life. Such was their circumstances that they could no longer stand Father, when we get to that place where we can't stand in our strength, remind us that those experiences lead us to depend upon the only one who never changes, and that's you. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of your great gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.